there. Welcome to SpicFic NZ podcast, where we bring you the authors that aren't afraid to ask what if. I'm Matt Danaher, and I mostly write unpublished short stories. I'm Kura Carpenter. I'm a Dunedin fantasy author. My debut novel, The Kingfisher's Debt, has come, just come out recently. And I'm Nick Whitaker, and I have nine novels that are indie published at the moment. So tonight we are joined by Tim Jones. Tim Jones is a poet and author of both science fiction and literary fiction who was awarded the New Zealand Society of Authors Janet Frame Memorial Award for Literature in 2010. He lives in Wellington, New Zealand. Tim has had one novel, two short story collections and, a, and four poetry collections published. Most recently, New Sea Land, Makaro Press, 2016, and has co-edited two poetry anthologies, including Voyagers, Science Fiction Poetry from New Zealand by Interactive Press 2009, co-edited with Mark Perry, which won the Best Collected Work category in the 2010 Sir Julius Vogel Awards. His climate fiction, brackets Cli-Fi, novella Where We Land has recently been published by the Cuba Press. So, Tim Jones, you're a member of Beckwith um, NZ. How did you find out about the society and how long have you been a member? Well, annoyingly, I'm going to lead with a don't know on both questions, uh, but I can give a little <laughs> bit more detail than that. I told you I was too honest, my own good. I think I found out about Specfic NZ while it was in the process of formation. I'm pretty sure that I heard about it through a science fiction mailing list, put myself on a list of interest, and joined either at the time it was set up or very soon afterwards. However, I also know that at some point my membership lapsed and happily I have uh, recently renewed it. So I've known about it for a long time. I have not been, I'd have to say I've not been an incredibly active member, but I did earlier this year uh, take part in a project uh, under the mentorship scheme run by um, Specfic NZ. So I was the mentor uh, to some, I was selected as a mentor to somebody who applied via that scheme. So I have a couple of questions. So um, I also do a series about climate change kind of uh, refugees, and I always made sure there was a kind of like a sense of hope, like people can figure things out. Do you think that when you write dystopian futures, whether we should be making sure that there's just this little hint of hope, or, or should we kind of be the kind of thing where we just pull off the Band-Aid and show people what horrible possibilities there are? So what type of dystopian future do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess my answer to that is it depends on the type of book. I mean, I have a, so my novella, I would say people's, uh, people's uh, value of what is a hopeful ending may differ. Uh, I think my novella has a relatively hopeful ending. Other people might not find it so hopeful. I have, I'm currently working on a novel, which is set, as I said to somebody, it started out set in the near future. I'm beginning to worry it's going to be historical fiction by the time it's finished, but it's set <laughs> near the present day. Uh, that also has, I think, well, at least in the first draft, a cautiously hopeful ending. On the other hand, I also have another novel in mind. I don't know if I'll pursue this one, which is a full-on climate change horror novel. And probably I'm 
you know, at the moment it's a concept, it probably isn't going to have a terribly hopeful ending. So I don't think there is a right answer to that question. I mean, it's quite a debate outside the area of fiction. It's quite a debate in the, in the wider field of climate change activism as to what extent telling the truth means what's a relation is giving people hope the right thing to do. And if you tell the unvarnished truth, what relationship does that have to either motivating or demotivating people? Those are very live debates. But as a writer, while I'm, my writing has often been at some distance from other things I'm doing in my life. Now the two are quite closely aligned. But as a writer, I don't necessarily take the same approach as I do when I'm being an activist. I mean, it's, I'm still working through all that stuff. So the short version, I don't think there's any obligation on the writer to write about climate change or anything else in a particular way. My question is, what works for the particular story I'm trying to tell? So did you end up making any major changes to your novella when you republished or did you just say, it's good, let's put it out there? It went through two further rounds of editing. So a little bit of publication history. This novella was first published as Landfall, as uh, Matt mentioned, um, by Paper Road Press in 2015. Paper Road Press, a very, a now again, active New Zealand uh, speculative fiction publisher, which is great because they have, I, I have some really interesting books coming out uh, and about to come out. Um, it was printed, it was published as an ebook and also collected it as an anthology, but it wasn't published as a standalone print novella. And with the, the very helpful cooperation of Paper Road Press, uh, the Cuba Press agreed to publish it as a standalone novella, the first novella in their uh, novella series, in fact. It has gone through, it has not had major changes in the sense of a major rewrite. It has gone through two further rounds of edits, and I have written an afterword to it, which mm. wasn't in the original version. So I don't think it's had a major change of direction. One or two specific things I did need to update in the just due to stuff that happened in the previous four years. But if it's set in, a, in the actual future, which I hope it isn't, it's still set some number of years in the future. So from that point of view, I didn't have to make a lot of changes. Yeah, so from a relaunch kind of uh, view, were you able to kind of uh, use your previous publication as, with some, uh, use it to leave some marketing love or did you approach the marketing all different or did your publishers do all the work for you? <laughs> the publishers at Cuba Press are very good at um, marketing. Uh, I should do a little plug for the Cuba Press. They're <laughs> a four-person publisher here in Wellington who have kind of resulted from the merger of two previous publishers. I say, no, a lot, that's a long story. I won't go into that there. Yeah. They're very good at book production. They're great at covers. I'm so happy with the cover of Where We Land. Uh, and they're good at doing marketing and promotion. So while, from memory, um, I, I made the arrangements, uh, you know, I made these arrangements myself with you, with you, of course, to, to do this podcast, other things like the Radio New Zealand interview I did recently were arranged via the publisher. So, no, I wanted to be careful that I didn't, that I gave due credit to Paper Road Press and also that 
I wasn't giving people the impression. I didn't want somebody to buy it and say, hey, I already got this. <laughs> You've made me pay for it twice. So I made it, you know, I did make it, uh, I did try and make it clear that it had been previously published. And also Paper Road Press could have said no to republication. Instead, they were very helpful. And I'm very thankful for that. And it's you were lucky enough. Oh, sorry, have you finished next? Oh, yeah, I was just about to say I'm finished with my questions. <laughs> um, Tim, so tell us about you receiving the Janet Frame Memorial Award for Literature. Well, this is a story. Oh, I'd so like to make something up at this point. Um, <laughs> what it. happened was I was going to apply for another New Zealand Society of Authors, uh, which is the National uh, Writing Organisation. I was going to apply for another New Zealand Society of Authors Award for mid-career writers. I think that was defined as writers who'd published at least three books, which I, I mean, at that point, I think I've all told, counting co-edited anthologies, I think I've now published 10. Um, sorry, so I've published, I have had 10 published. I missed the deadline for that award. I'd, I'd done some work on my application. I missed the deadline. I was so cross with myself. I just wrote it down wrong by a week. And oh. Then I found, I told you I shouldn't have started on this story. <laughs> and then I found that there was this other award, the NZSA Janet Memorial Award for Literature. And I thought, well, I, I qualify for this. And I've done this work on the application. And yes, it's not the same award. So I can't put in the same application, but I'm going to rework my application I'm going to submit for this. To my astonishment, I got it. And of course, an award named after Janet Frame. I mean, I, am, I don't want to sound ungrateful for it. I was very, very grateful and happy to receive it. But I can't pretend that it was part of a carefully planned campaign. <laughs> the application happened to some extent by accident. But I'm very glad and thankful to get that award and to have that name on it particularly. Yeah, no, that's 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 a big deal. That's brilliant. Obviously, it shows the um, the, the quality of your work that when they were judging it, that yeah, you received it. They um, they wouldn't have thought it was an accident, even if it was well, I haven't an told accident. Them. <laughs> somebody, somebody, somebody who worked there, t you know, nine years ago is probably going. Hang on a minute. No, I, I think <laughs> I have actually told them that that process. Yes, and thank you. Yes, I mean, I, as I say, I don't want to minimise how happy I am about it. Um, yeah. But it was just the process of applying was slightly accidental. Yeah, but Serendipity, I, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. Thank you. That's a much nicer way of putting it than I've just put it. <laughs> and something um, that I was also quite interested to learn is that you were involved with the Authors in Schools program. How did you become involved in that? Well, that's a program run by the New Zealand Book Council. Uh, the Book Council maintain the writer files, among other things. Uh, one of the many things in which I need to update my entry to re reflect this new book. They also run, I think I'm still correct in saying run, the Writers in Schools program, which takes authors of all kinds, particularly but not solely people who write, for mainly for younger audiences, into schools to do things like give workshops, give talks. And they also organise tours uh, of like, they might organise a tour of, of authors from the North Island who do a tour around the schools in the Southern South Island, for example. Now, I haven't done a lot with that programme, but I have done a few things. I've been into uh, secondary schools. I've been into, in fact, yeah, secondary, intermediate and primary schools. I've done things in each of those. 
Uh, the questions are quite different in each. I've also, though not directly through that program, judged judged high school. I have judged high school literary competitions as well as junior sections of wider literary competitions as well, which didn't directly arise out of that. But perhaps the fact that I'm on I'm listed as being a participant in that may have contributed to that opportunity. Yeah, might have, might have opened a few doors. Yeah, and I was thinking too. Yeah, the questions that the kids ask must be very different. I'm assuming the younger the kids are, the blunter their questions probably are. They probably <laughs> want to know how many books you sold, how much money you've made, kind of thing. And do you you've find got it that the, um, that is the question, and the yeah. answer is usually rather disappointing to them. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think it reflects. Well, of course there are. I mean, ch children's and YA writing financially. I don't want to overstate it, but I think in broad terms, that if you're going to write fiction in this country. That's a very, very good area of fiction to be writing in terms of making a living or part of a part of a living from it. Yeah, the yes. younger what I've found is that primary school children, intermediate level, I don't know, I'm not sure if we have many intermediate schools anymore, but the upper primary school level, and even the first couple of forms in high school are much less self-conscious about both their own work and uh asking questions about the author's work, it can be quite a lot more difficult. I mean, you get some very, very good questions from older students, but in workshopping terms, creating the necessary level of trust where people oh. are willing to share their work. I mean, that yes. can be done, but my experience is, especially in a high school setting, yeah. I have found that quite difficult to do just yeah. coming in for a few hours. Absolutely, yeah, that's right, because yeah. it's such a short amount of time yeah. to um, create a rapport and yeah particularly I can imagine with the older high school kids they really just want to be told that they're doing the right thing and so they're too afraid probably to put their work out there and risk being crushed. I mean not all of them by any means uh, I also judged the uh, sorry co-judged with Patrick Pink the junior section of the National Flash Fiction Day competition uh, last year and there's a lot of entries and a lot of incredibly yeah. good entries and the standard of the best work in that competition was extremely high so but again I guess it's one thing to share something with an anonymous judge or at least it's anonymous when you send it in and it's an sorry actually I'll take that back sorry it's one thing to share something with a judge and another thing to share something with your peers mm. in public in school yes yeah absolutely but yeah that's it sounds interesting and yeah i certainly remember like nick's does yeah um authors coming in when i was at high school and it, yeah it was it was really encouraging yeah even though obviously back then we were told yeah you're crazy trying to be a writer you can't make a living at it so <laughs> that's one thing that i don't do i mean if somebody directly asks how much money do you make did you make from writing last year i will try to tell them and sometimes, yeah, I think that specific thing of if somebody asks, am I likely to make a full-time living from my writing? Yeah. I will answer honestly, which is it is certainly possible, but yes. it is not easy. And here are some areas of writing where it might be, relatively speaking, you know, more financially, uh, better financially, um, but that you can make some money from writing. I mean, I hope that's not too pessimistic. It's just based on my own experience, basically. Oh, that's better than me. I would probably fall down laughing. 
<laughs> I uh, also tutor, uh, have been tutoring creative writing students at Fitzgerald Polytechnic, and um, again, that's yeah. I just try to be. I, I mean, basically, I can speak from my own experience, and there's also figures that exist about the average income of New Zealand writers. And of course, it's a bit different. Often, I mean, I, I'm perhaps a slightly unusual case of somebody who's writing. Some of whose writing is speculative fiction, but who, with the exception of some short stories, hasn't been hasn't been published much offshore. That's a, yeah, I mean, that's a long story as to why that is. Yeah. Um, the financial possibilities of doing that are obviously potentially it's the difficult hoops to get through, but the financial rewards can be much greater. Tim, I'm really interested in uh, a comment you made on the on the Google Doc that we uh, created um, in advance of recording um, about the fact that you're a, you're a climate change activist as well as a creative writer. As someone who does creative writing and is involved in uh, political activism, I'm quite interested in um, finding out how you find marrying the two interests together. You talked a little bit about that already, but um, I'd be interested to hear a bit more. Yeah, this is, it's weird because my first book, which is a short story collection that came out in 2001, was called Extreme Weather Events, which suggests in itself, as is true, I was already interested in these issues a long time back. And I've been involved in environmental campaigning I mean, it's a long period of my life when I wasn't, but essentially in my late teens and through to my late 20s, and again from about my mid-40s onwards, I'm 60. Um, during the, yeah, what, what am I, I'm not doing very well with this answer. Essentially, there's been times in my life where the two have felt quite distinct, but increasingly I feel as though the two are aligned. And my last two books, apart from having the possibly uh, unfortunate fact that they both have land in the title, <laughs> New Sea Land, about half the poems in that collection are about sea level rise. Some more realistic, some speculative. Each of my collections has some speculative poetry, although I've never actually written a fully speculative poetry collection. Where We Land is about climate refugees or another term that uh, perhaps is a better one. I'm not sure climate-induced migrants coming to this country and how this country might react uh or, and focus not i mean that makes it sound like a textbook it's focused on two characters so i think for me it's partly something about bringing two halves of my brain together and i'm finding now that at my at the launch of where we land i was quite comfortable talking both about the book and about what I would call the climate change emergency that we currently face. There is a danger that I'll, in seeking to write fiction, I will end up writing polemic. Mm. I'm not one of the people, and I, I think I would, I think there's a, a view creating a paper tiger here, but I think there's a view in some literary circles that it's rather not done to write about politics in fiction. I disagree with that view. However, that doesn't mean I think all fiction should be political. And it also doesn't mean, I'm also aware of the distinction between fiction and polemical writing that's designed to make a point. And I'm hope, I mean, the reader will have to judge this, that where we land, and if it's published, the novel I'm currently working on, 
use character and plot to explore these issues, but don't force the reader to draw a particular conclusion. I think you've definitely um, achieved that in in the version, the earlier version of Where We Land, certainly that I, I've read. Um, I think there's quite a nice interplay between um, the kind of what's happening in the world and how the uh, two principal characters kind of and i'm trying carefully to avoid spoilers there but how they manage to kind of navigate um that rea- the reality in which they're operating and it's just almost you know it's absolutely intrinsic to the to the story but it's at the same time you're actually reading a story about two characters um navigate you know making their way through the world thank you yes and i i sh- that's probably a good point for me to say that yeah the the basic storyline has not significantly changed a few details have changed but the basic storyline hasn't changed yeah so yeah i hope to continue doing this and in my current novel it's more difficult because there's a i mean a stand a strand of the story is itself about climate politics so inherently a political storyline is going to have some politics in it or it wouldn't be realistic to the characters. So in that strand of the story, finding that balance is quite difficult. Um, we'll have to see how uh, how well I do at finding that balance. Definitely. I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting from, from an activist point of view as well is um, the fact that actually political writing really does sell. And um, it's just, I think sometimes that for us, those of us that are activists, we are really paranoid almost that we're going to turn what we're writing into, into a pandemic. But actually, you know, how many millions of people um, are absolutely still obsessed years later with with the West Wing on TV? Mm. Um, And how many people watched House of Cards and how many people are watching The Handmaid's Tale and read the book on which it's based? Um, You know, there's there's clearly a market out there for for political writing and writing with a message. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale is, you know, (laughs) there's, there's a real, there is a polemic at the heart of that quite clearly <clears throat> yes I'm, I'm struggling to say anything more than yes yeah. as an answer to that i mean <laughs> yeah it's, i know it's kind of a dangerous dynamic, writing, but, um, yeah <laughs> conversation yeah i mean it's those are very skilled writers doing that writing uh i mean there's another interesting example in terms of game of thrones and sorry i should yes. say a song of ice and fire and being game of thrones uh, what I've done quite a bit. It's actually got me quite interested as a reader of A Song of Ice and Fire and then subsequently a watcher of Game of Thrones. It's got me doing quite a lot of re- reading about medieval politics and history. Uh, that's not a background I have at all. Uh, I've even read Machiavelli's The Prince and a biography of Machiavelli, which, which are two interesting parallels. Another one I enjoy at the moment, again, came to the book series first and then the TV series, is The Expanse, which uh, if people haven't watched it, is an good. Yeah, you have? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to put in a plug for it here. It's really <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I used to read a lot of hard SF when I was young. Uh, I haven't read a lot of hard SF recently. I have kept up Kim Stanley Robinson somewhere in that hard SF area, and I've kept up with that, with his writing. Uh, the Expanse, I find both thrilling on a hard SF level and really interesting politically. So those sort of novels I really like to read, but I don't think I have the necessary... I mean, I might surprise myself and write in this area, but I tend to focus on nearer future, closer-to-home stuff. Absolutely. Talking of where, where we land is set very close to where I actually live. <clears throat> And we were talking about this a little bit just before we started recording. Um, it was really cool for me when I was reading it and I was like, they're walking along Arthur Street 
and um, you know you're talking about Beechcroft Avenue which is literally the end of my road the whole kind of layout that I could have picture in my head of the story seems perfect um, you live in Wellington have you ever lived in Auckland? Um, I mean, how did you choose the area where you set it and, and what kind of research did you do? Thank you. Well, I think I should say that I think there might be one geographical error in the landfall edition, which we've corrected and where we land. Of course, slightly worryingly, if it was right in the landfall issue, it may be wrong in where we land. But um, so that was, yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I haven't, it's weird. I'm aware I haven't really mentioned too much about the fact that it's in Auckland. It's not deliberate I haven't mentioned it. It just hasn't really come up in previous conversations. My memory of that is that I had, I had the, I've had the idea, uh, that this was initially published in 2015. I had the idea for a story something like that for at least five years before that. And I had a couple of goes at writing it as a short story, but I only had one of the two main storylines. And it was when I added the, there's two, two protagonists in the story or protagonist and antagonist, depending on how you view them, but two main characters, uh, two viewpoint characters. And it was when I added the second viewpoint characters viewpoint that it started to work. Um, and that was that side of it. I have not lived in Auckland, but on a trip to Auckland, I did pass through that area and was thinking about how close that motorway was to sea level. And that's, I think, what got started. Be start, you know, I was just trying to, trying to get a credible place to set the story. So mm. I'm glad to hear that it appears as though I did that reasonably well. Although I'm interested now to know what you think your geographical mistake was. I don't know if I should say. I think I might have said the Waitamata Harbour somewhere, or I should have said the Manukau Harbour. Ah, uh, okay. I must have missed yeah. that. I'll have to yeah, but may, maybe I didn't say. Or may, actually, you know, it may have been fixed in the final version because I che I was comparing the most recent page for this. A bit, it's a bit worrying now. I've opened up this mysterious mm. topic. Hopefully, rush out and buy the book, folks, to see if it's correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's marketing. I like that. Cunning marketing ploy. Yeah, that's right. You can get it, get it from the Cuban press, I believe. You can get it from the Cuba Press and you can get it from, well, you should be able to order it from any bookstore. The details are on the Cuba Press website. Uh, it's certainly available in independent bookstores. For instance, it's in Unity Wellington. I would certainly think that if you're in Auckland, you should be able to get it through Unity Auckland. But you can also order it. Just look up uh, where we land the Cuba Press and you'll find information about the book and an order form what have you um found best um about being i mean you said you haven't been that active recently but what have you found best about being a member of spec for ken Z? well the thing i have found best is in a way it's the existence of spec for ken Z that is the best thing um it's the fact that there is a place for spec for authors to go because especially when i started out i was I knew other people who were keen to write speculative fiction, but I didn't know any experienced speculative fiction authors. Um, and I think knowing that there is a place where people can go, they can get advice, they can just connect with other speculative fiction authors, I think that's really valuable. I mean, I started out writing in the day when if you wanted to submit a short story to an overseas magazine, you had to go and get something called international reply coupons mm. uh, to a certain value, put them in with your, so you printed out your story, you printed your cover letter, you got a return 
envelope with your return address. You've got the necessary number of international reply coupons. You got you carefully addressed everything and you sent it off. Now I'm thinking, how did I ever bear to do that repeatedly? <laughs> but then it was just what you did. And so there wasn't the point I'm making. Didn't submit fiction by. I know not everything is submitted by the internet even now. Didn't submit stuff by the internet didn't have internet sources of information. And now there is that, but it's people still have to have a place to look, right? And I'll just, mm. just another aside, in 2011, I was a guest at the Dan Davin Literary Festival, which is held in Invercargill. I grew up partly in Southland. So 2011, a few years ago now, but I was very struck. I ran a workshop there, which included some speculative fiction writers, including some very talented ones, although they weren't all speculative fiction writers. But the overwhelming thing that struck me was the sense of isolation those writers felt. And breaking that, and they had a sense, and I'm not saying this reflects reality, because indeed there's been some well-known authors come from Southland but they had a sense that it was just so difficult. Not even, it wasn't even it was difficult to get published. It was just difficult to get in front of people, to get their work in front of people who could publish them. And that was probably even more so for those who were seeking to get published in Aotearoa. So breaking that sense of isolation for writers, I think is really, really important. And it's all the more so, I, 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 and I wonder if this is true for you and Tom Anui, but my impression is that when you're outside the main centres and the places where the publishers are, if you're going the conventional publishing route, that's even more the case. Uh, am I like talking old school here or is that still real to some extent? No, no even, I, yeah, I think that's still real. That's still yeah. A lot of it still comes down to networking. And little things like who do you get to critique your work? Like mm. I yeah. have to do everything online. And so even getting feedback on a chapter here and there is – is like a mission. Yeah, yeah, everything's an effort. It, it just, do you know, sorry, in response to what you say, do you know Anthony Millen? This is probably yes. not stuff that should go on the podcast because he instantly came to mind as somebody who might be a... I work with Anthony. He's oh, the reason yeah. I'm actually published. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. oh, he, um, he self-published a book and I was thinking, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is staying in. I'm not cutting this out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess, is my advice to people... Talk to Anthony Millen. <laughs> Distilled wisdom of Tim's literary advice. No, possibly yeah. not. But yet, <laughs> it can be hard. I'm, I'm kind of, like, I'm both reassured and saddened that that advice about the need to break writer's yeah. isolation. I mean, I wish mm. it wasn't true, but I think it often is. And particularly with the internet these days, mm. there's, there's kind of a false perception that we're isolated, but there, there is people out there You've just got to try and make the effort. That's right. But it also is about having confidence. I mean, that's something I've... I had no confidence for a long time as a writer. It took me a long, long time. I'm quite a shy person, or I have been for much of my life. And I'm the sort of person, I go into a room with people I don't know. I'm like, okay, where is the darkest corner now? That's actually a good thing about online to some extent, I guess, that it it breaks some of that up. Yes, yeah, that's true. That's a very fair point. Yeah. As we were saying to Matt last week, who was talking about finding a critique group, and I was saying, well, why don't you just start a group? But obviously, I have done. Yeah. I have done. <laughs> you have Yay. done. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm you know, starting one. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a bit shy, then that, that um, you know, that is all, that much harder 
but yeah, there is that point that you can start your own thing. You don't have to go find something else, find someone else rather. I'm just easier when you've got a group to network with. Yes, true. Yeah. You, you do need a place to start, don't you? Yeah. So from your from your point of view in Tamaranui, do you like, is there any local writers group that, I'm interviewing you now, <laughs> is there any <laughs> local writers group that, that is, you know, that you can join or does it have to be all online and done remotely? So um, there is a locals writers group, but they don't write speculative fiction. That's the problem. Mm. Is there, or yeah. we got, we've got poets and we've got literary fiction and things like that, but none of them are in my genre. And so I look at them and I go, they don't write like me. So yeah. they can't give me the right feedback and things yes. like that. And it's gotten to the point where uh, me and Anthony now are the ones that do workshops for <laughs> the ones in town and how to get published along yeah. and how to critique stuff and things like that. And so <laughs> the, it's kind of changed now that because I've reached out to all the different groups out there that yeah. now I'm the one people come to. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Does SpecFicNZ organise um, critique groups or like provide a channel by which people can organise them? We have been trying to. It hasn't really been working, so we need to look at that again. Yes, uh, definitely um, the Auckland group that uh, I'm trying to start will be almost entirely through SpecFicNZ. Um, right. And there's been a few people in Auckland getting in touch with us. We do something, which is great. But yeah, but a lot yeah. of it comes down to having that one person that says, right, I'm going to start something. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Tim, um, it's been really great having you uh, on the podcast. Um, before you go, would you like to just tell our listeners? Now, we'll put all this information into the show notes as well, but a lot of people just listen to podcasts while they're driving. Don't read the show notes. So would you like to tell people where they can find you online? You can find me on Twitter at... Tim Jones Books, all one word. So I'll just say that again, at Tim Jones Books. And that's also my Facebook name. And that's also my Instagram name. I have to say that my Instagram game is very much at the under fives kick around level at this point. <laughs> um, but I'm proud of that. Um, and I've also got an embarrassingly old school blog called Books in the Trees, timjonesbooks.blogspot.com. And probably if you want to sort of get the long version of what I've done as a writer, if you go to the New Zealand Book Council site, their writer's files, and look under Jones, Tim, I think it is, then you'll find that there. Actually, one of the good things about this exercise and the research you've done, it's made me realize how out of date quite a lot of the information that's around about me is. And I need to do something about that. Another thing to add to my list of things I need to do something about, but it's, a, it's something that does need doing. You don't necessarily research yourself, do you? So you, don't, you don't no, I suppose it's a good sign. It shows I'm not here. vain. So yay. <laughs> Unlike me, I've got a Google alert set up for my name. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to. I used to, but I mean, Tim Jones, right? I've often wondered, should I be Tim R R Jones just to get that like a little bit? <laughs> I of think you should. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I might have to throw it's in a few. It's not too late have... to change. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. not too late to change. <laughs> my other motto. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, um, thanks again for joining us. It's been really good having you on. Yeah, thank you very much.